everyone. Welcome back to Ukrainianish, where we're exploring war, identity, and victory. Today, we're taking things down under and exploring the connections between Ukraine and Australia. I love that intro. Um, yes, so we have two very special guests on the podcast today. Um, Sonia, tell me more about who they are and how you got in contact with them. Yeah, so back in Ukraine, the Canadian and Australian embassies were really close and I mean that literally because they shared a building and the diplomatic communities of both Canada and Australia were always pretty close because of this. Yeah, I was at the same bus stop in the morning to go to school as um, as the, the son of the Australian ambassador. And he was a really cute kid and I like babysat for him once. Sweetest, sweetest kid. Don't tell the other kids I babysat, but I think he was my favorite. Really, really great kid so obsessed with koalas which is pretty on brand for australia um but yeah that's how i like found bruce who is the australian ambassador to ukraine and that's one of the guests on our podcast and he introduced me to stefan who is part of the ukrainian diaspora association in australia and so i got to talk to both of them separately and i got to hear about diplomatic efforts and what australia is doing in ukraine to help with the war and what they were doing before as well um, and then what's going on in Australia um, by Ukrainian diaspora in Australia, which was very, very interesting. And I didn't realize how many similarities there were uh, between Ukrainian diaspora in Australia and Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. Uh, but there's quite a few similarities. But the, the main difference is the size, because there are so many more Ukrainians in Canada. Um and in fact, like we were talking about the diaspora community and he was telling me about all these people he knows in in like Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, which was pretty cool. So, yeah, those are the two people we talked to to get a better look at Australia, which we're doing a country spotlight of today. Yeah. And just quickly backtracking a little bit, I really wanted to mention that this is our kind of second episode in our country spotlight series. And we started this, I feel like because there are a lot of stories kind of untold from around the world, not just from Ukrainians, but from countries themselves. And I think each country is very unique in how they've supported Ukraine and their relationship to Ukraine. Like Germany is very different from Poland, for example, or even France, um, even though we kind of think of them sometimes in a very similar kind of manner. So I think this series does a really good, can do a really good job of kind of highlighting very like country specific things and Australia is a really interesting example I think in a way the countries you've chosen have seemed a little bit random but I am very excited for this spotlight on Australia because of that really interesting really important connection to Bruce to the ambassador to Ukraine so anyway keep going Sonia <laughs> yeah I think Australia it seems so peripheral to Ukraine because of how far away it is, but really they're doing so much. So it was really great to figure out in what ways they're doing so much and and just learn more about them in general. I think country spotlights serve a really great purpose to broaden your perspectives on um, how Ukraine is internationally, international relations, and um, how the the current invasion and current, I guess, cultural shift is being perceived from a different, um, 
a different geographic location that yeah, you might not sorry. be thinking of. Um, yeah, and I, f- I feel like very often we think of the West as literally like the countries in Europe, but specifically in Western Europe and like US Canada. But it's interesting to see the similarities between Canada and Australia and think about like, well, Australia is all that ways away, um, but still kind of fall into this category of quote unquote, like the Western world. Um, So it's interesting how they being technically kind of part of this Western world um, and in a lot of ways, like values wise, but like have those similarities, um, but are geographically so far away comparative compared to, I don't know, say like Germany, France, Canada. Yeah, it's funny you keep bringing up Germany because I had an interaction with a German friend today um, where I, yeah, I'm applying for my my visa to go to Germany right now and uh, I wasn't sure whether or not to say I'm Ukrainian and it kind of brought up the whole like reason of this podcast is like, what does being Ukrainian mean? And yeah, I have the privilege of, of whether or not I want to be seen as Ukrainian in the German visa system. And yeah, talking about that. And I asked her, like, is this going to do any harm? And she goes, no, we love Ukrainians. Like, we have not sent any um, weapons or any military-grade support since the end of the Second World War. And we have broken our stance on it for Ukraine. And so I just thought that was that was so interesting and just reminded me of something that happened just just earlier today that brought mm-hmm. in my own perspectives of, of how you received internationally but more on that in the germany spotlight episode very true that's definitely in the works um sonia do you want to kind of introduce or start with our very first interviewee yeah without further ado bruce edwards australian ambassador to ukraine Hello and welcome to the Ukrainian Niche podcast where we're exploring war, identity, and victory. Today we have our Australia Spotlight episode with Ambassador of Australia to Ukraine, Bruce Edwards, who I knew back a couple years ago. I first met, um, was my neighbor in Kiev. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Would you care to introduce yourself to our audience? Thanks. It's great, great to be with you today. I'm really pleased. I, and I think you've um, you've missed out a little bit there. One of the reasons that, that you knew me was because you knew my son, who you were babysitting, and who uh, you feature as the favourite babysitter of all his time. So you can take that, put that on your CV. I think I might. That is that is <laughs> such a compliment. And hey, if you can be don't... complimented by a seven-year-old, then you're doing well. Yeah. Don't tell any of the other kids I babysat, but he might be one of my favorites. <laughs> he might be the favourite, but. I probably shouldn't say that. I'm not going to tell him that. Oh, don't let it get to his head. No. So would you like to introduce yourself? Anything else you'd like to say before we get into the question? Oh, sorry. That was that was the extent of my introduction. Yeah. So um, i ambassador to, to Ukraine from Australia since uh, September, October 2020, uh, but previously had spent uh, time as... Um, as the acting ambassador in 2016-17. So we'd spent what was supposed to be three months in, in Kiev and, and turned into 13, uh, and we were very happy about that. And when the opportunity came to, to apply for the, for the ambassador's role three years later, we jumped at it and um, were delighted to find out we were heading back to, back to Kiev for 
what we thought would be three or four years of um, really enjoying Kiev and, and discovering more and more of Ukraine. And um, all of those plans were obviously uh, made redundant last year um, in February 2022 with uh, the full-scale invasion. Um, since that time, so family evacuated in late January and then um, our, our embassy, which is only two two Australian diplomats and four local Ukrainian staff. Uh, the, we Australian diplomats evacuated first to Lviv on the 13th of February and then um, to southern Poland on the 22nd of February um, and have been based in, in Warsaw since since last year with making, um, making visits to, to Kyiv occasionally. Perfect. So with that, we'll get into the first question. What role has Australia played in supporting and responding to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine? So like the rest of the world, um, and I think this is one of those cases where, you know, in, my, in my living memory, uh, it is one of the very few cases of a, of a conflict which um, has been seen as you know, quite, quite so black and white, um, right versus wrong, good versus evil, if you like. Uh, where there's been little, little in the way of grey blurriness, and so it was, it, it was quite obvious uh, as we did with in lockstep with partners, um, condemning Russia's full-scale invasion. We had previously um, condemned Russia's illegal annexation, occupation of uh, of Crimea, and and um, and their occupation in uh, Russian forces. Uh, in the Donbass, but full-scale invasion was a was was a game changer, if you like. Uh, Australia came out very strong, condemned that, uh, and started to take action against against Russia that built on previous autonomous sanctions and so forth. Um, I think, to the surprise of many, and possibly many in Australia, our our response in terms of military assistance was was very robust to begin with. Uh, you know, I can't actually remember the, the first numbers, but I think it was about $100 million that came out very quickly in military assistance. But that has since grown to $710 million in military assistance. And one of the things that has now become synonymous with Australian support is the Bushmaster vehicle. So it's a protected mobility vehicle that um, really came into its own in Afghanistan. It has a a V-shaped hull that protects against explosions, uh, IEDs, and while that's not an issue so much in, in Ukraine, um, it has provided massive protection from mines and so forth. Uh, we've, uh, you know, as of late last year, we knew of, uh, of at least a couple of vehicles that had been hit, and I mean, there's a, there's a photo of one that is, is just wreckage strewn on a, in a field, but we were getting reports saying not a single person died in that and it's hard to look at that and think wow that shredded piece of metal actually protected everybody so the bushmaster has have become synonymous with our support and there's now uh, 120 of these vehicles have been committed um there's, an, there's 30 on their way uh, almost as we speak uh in addition to other military assistance and that's that's involved things like howitzers and um i know one stage last year i think there were a hundred howitzers that were delivered by between the UK, Canada and Australia. Uh, and I know that the, the US, I think, put in um, 90 um, and 
uh, Canada put in, I, I think they, they put in a handful as well and Australia put in six and it was like, oh, six. But that was actually one eighth of our entire supply of howitzers. So um, it didn't sound like much, but um, it was considerable in terms of what we're taking out of our own stockpiles. But in addition to the military assistance, um, there's been humanitarian assistance uh, of $75 million, um, and that's been channeled through our UN partners and other reliable partners in, in Ukraine. We don't have a bilateral development program, the likes of, uh, of what Canada does or, um, or USAID, UK aid, etc. Uh, but um, we're basically providing funding in addition to other core funding in that. And then there's been uh, efforts to hold Russia accountable, and that, whether that be through sanctions, um, import-export bans, additional tariffs, so forth. Um, there's been um, advantageous uh, conditions for Ukrainian uh, businesses. So we dropped, we went to a zero tariff on um, goods coming from from Ukraine. So imports, Ukrainian imports into Australia have duty-free access. Um, and then, then uh, some other uh, discrete elements, such as at one stage we shipped 80,000 tonnes of coal to, to Ukraine to... Um, to, to shore up its energy security, particularly um, in the context of last year and the, and the strikes on the critical national infrastructure. Uh, projects to the State Border Guard Service to upgrade their systems, funding to the International Atomic Ener uh, Energy Agency, the Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, uh, UN uh, FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, in some of their rapid response plans, all these kind of things that have built one on, one on the other. Um, we also have there's Australian troops who are um, not in Ukraine but in, in the United Kingdom who are participating in uh, Operation Interflex, which um, is, is the operation that's um, pro uh, supporting, uh, providing training for, for new recruits uh, working alongside, oh, it's, a, it's a bundle of countries now, and I know Canada's in, involved in that as well. Um, so yeah, there's been a diverse range of things, but I'd say the bulk of the bulk of that assistance is is that military assistance for sure. And then in terms of um, beyond the official, that's everything I've mentioned there is kind of official government support. Um, then there is just the the outpouring of support from the Australian community, and obviously our our diaspora in Australia, there's an umbrella organisation, the Australian Federation for Ukrainian Organisations. They have been a massive source of support, both politically, holding fundraisers, all of the, all of the kind of benefits that have been done by, by uh, Ukrainian diasporas around the world. Uh, but in addition to that, non-Ukrainians, people who support Ukraine in the face of Russia's aggression, people who can identify, I, mean, I say people who can identify, so many people who have identified that this is, they want to be on the right side of history, if you like. They, they um, if, if we're going to support a, a free, uh, you know, international rules-based order, and if we care about that in our own region, then we care about it in other regions. I think so many Australians in the community have just come out and said, this is, you know, yes, this is wrong. We, we object to Russia's actions and we, we see what the Ukrainian army is up against, and we want to help them defend their own their own country and protect their own people. And so there, there has been a lot in the way of uh, appeals and so forth that has been done. 
just on that community level. That's incredible, especially hearing about the military support proportional to the military size of Australia. That is so generous and so, so great to hear about, Um, which I guess leads me into my next question about where this this support comes from. And I want to know, is there a strong foundation of shared values and maybe shared culture between Ukraine and Australia? And if there is, what does that look like? So I think... You know, for, for most people, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll be honest, prior to uh, prior to the full-scale invasion, and as someone who had spent time in Ukraine, look, I'll admit, when I came to Ukraine in 2016, uh, I, I had very little idea of what to expect. You know, you, um, knowing full well that it had moved on since 1991, but you, you, you've, I, I came, I had travelled in Eastern Europe, uh, parts of Eastern Europe, but not Ukraine previously, and I'm uh, approaching the place going, am I going to find a kind of grey, dour, um, you know, former, former Soviet Republic? And I arrived there, and of course, uh, you and your listeners know, know well, nothing like that. Uh, not only because it had moved on, but because it always had been this such a rich country uh, culturally and the, 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 the strength of the people, the, you know, I've arriving in a sophisticated European city uh, and absolutely fell in love with it. Um, hence why when my three months turned into 13, I was, I was absolutely delighted. But there, you would say there's not a lot of, um, not a lot of awareness about Ukraine prior to the full-scale invasion. And far too often it would have been seen through a prism of, um, well, what could easily be be spoken about in terms of Russian disinformation and misinformation, that everyone's corrupt and um, let's not even go down the neo-Nazi line here because uh, it doesn't, doesn't really deserve it. But there, there was a lot of um, misinformation about, about Ukraine. And, and let's face it, from the other side of the world, for, for much of Eastern Europe too, we, we in Australia, wouldn't have had um, that, that depth of understanding. But I think getting down to the nitty-gritty of it, are there shared values? Absolutely. When you think about Australia, you'll always hear part of our, our foreign policy underpinning that, that foreign policy is our belief and support for an international rules-based order and democratic ideals. And when you look into, okay, what, what does the current modern Ukraine want to be and where does it see its future? Uh, very obviously, and it's not just about EU candidacy and Euro-Atlantic aspirations. It is to be a part of, you know, a valued member of the international rules-based order, to be alongside its partners, um, a, a vibrant democracy. Um, it has been taking efforts to um, and, and achieving and, and also you know, continuing to be challenged, taking efforts to, to reform uh, you know what what the systems some of the systems that were that were left behind uh, prior to 91 uh, to to ensure that it does satisfy uh, not only EU requirements but also the aspirations of its people I think that the, it, it's very easy to talk about oh well corruptions entrenched and so forth but particularly uh, and again you know this better than I but post Maidan the new generation you know they don't. They don't want to stand for that anymore. They 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 want better for themselves and for their kids and and for their futures. And 
I think I was really lucky to see, I, you know, I arrived after the Maidan, but I was still seeing some of that kind of, that blush um, of optimism. And whilst I'd say some of it was probably wearing off as well, and, and there was an impatience about, hang on, we, we took to the streets and, you know, people died for, for our values here and what we wanted, how we wanted the country to change, and it's not happening quickly enough. And let's face it, change never does happen as quick as, as, quick as we want in, when it's good change. Uh, but then to come back in in 2020, and I and I remember talking to some people, and they would they would say, ah, oh, it's it's um you know it's worse than it was, and but I would identify these small small tangible things, and, and simple as and I arrived back in the middle of COVID, so it was again um, very different, but things such as uh, recycling bins and so forth that were on the streets that hadn't been there previously and and seeing the um and these are tiny little things and now talking about this in the context of the full-scale invasion it seems kind of surreal and ridiculous but there were these small advances that i could see had been made in society where people wanted better and you know whether it was whether it was recycling whether it was bike paths whether it was lighting um the kind of beautification and I know there'll always be those who say, oh, well, the gentrification of areas was, you know, a negative for other reasons, but you could really see how Ukrainians and, um, and, and authorities who were listening to Ukrainians would try to make, um, make their, their country and their future yeah, molded uh, more so in, in the way that, that to which they aspired. Um, and I think that that does speak to some of the the, the shared values and, and culture. I mean, if you if you look at it just in terms of traditional culture, it's it's a little bit difficult to um, to draw the similarities between Ukrainian dance and song, um, and as we mentioned before, kind of folkloric tradition. Uh, you know, draw those those links with Australia, but then again, you you could make the argument that we much of it is to, about storytelling and explaining um, our lives and our, our histories and it's just done in a different manner but I mean that's that's going way back but in terms of more recently and particularly within the last 100 200 years um, the the diaspora in Australia um, which is about 35 to 40,000 strong that has provided a link uh, whilst I think at times also constantly trying to uh, to assert its Ukrainian identity rather than Russian or Soviet. And it is true that for particularly early 20th century, many Ukrainians would have just, in Australia, would have just been denoted as, as Russian. So there were Ukrainians uh, who fought with the Australian army in World War One, for instance, and then they're known as the, the Ukrainian Anzacs, but their papers may have just noted them as being as being Russian. But part of what the diaspora's um, uh, objectives in Australia have been about is to ensure that you know, we are Ukrainian, we come from Ukraine, not the Ukraine, and um, just because we speak Russian, it doesn't doesn't mean we, we we're Russian. Um, which you know, we could get into that whole kind of language doesn't equal loyalty bit, uh, just as some of my um, most ardent 
Scottish nationalist friends um, speak English, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're great fans of them. I think that summarizes everything so well that you don't necessarily need to have uh, ties in your folk culture in order to relate and have shared values and a shared culture of the vision you want to see for the world. And I think that's yeah. that's really beautiful. Uh, and I do actually think, this, um, if I'm not wrong, one of our politicians may have actually kind of run the line of, you know, Australians don't like a bully. I mean, no one really likes a bully, let's face it. But it was this case of Australians will still stand up to a bully. And what they, the actions they saw of Russia encapsulated that entirely. Um, you see, a, sure, Australians, many Australians wouldn't have been, I'll be honest, wouldn't necessarily have known um, how to, you know, where to point to, to Ukraine on a map um, and really have much understanding about, um, about its, even its recent history. But it was simple to say, hang on, this were a bunch of people who were living in their own country quite peacefully. Yes, there may have been a conflict that we don't understand happening on the edges, but then um, Putin has, has, uh, has invaded um, and said that he wants what is not his. And of course, it became pretty easy as to who you were going to back in that fight. Yeah, so you mentioned that maybe not every Australian can point out where Ukraine is on the map. Or I think they can now. <laughs> I hope they can. I'm, I'm sure that they can. Seeing seeing how, seeing the strength of response from Australia, I, I, I have faith. I have faith that more and more Australians are going to know where we are. Um, which leads me to my next question. How can ordinary citizens and communities in Australia contribute to supporting Ukraine and raising awareness about the situation? So, like I mentioned, the it, it is, I suppose, as um, as residents anywhere in the world have done and do continue to do, it it is through the um, support for appeals and turning up. Um, I think now we're probably in a stage where continuing to turn up to events and to voice support uh, and to call out, um, you know, the atrocities is really important. Um, and you and I touched before briefly on current events in, in Gaza. And I know in your previous episodes, you know, I think even in your first episode, you may have mentioned how, how, how part of this whole concept of the podcast is, is to, um, it's kind of battle against, if you like, the, the, the fatigue of support. Um, and whilst people may have given all they can give uh, for, for monetary appeals and so forth, they can still do quite a bit in terms of maintaining visibility of the, you know, call it the issue of Ukraine, um, but maintain visibility of what is going on and not just let it, it, it will fall off the front page of the press. And we've, of course we're seeing that this week with Gaza, um, but it's important that even if it, falls back um, in its coverage that people are still aware of what is happening and that just because we're not hearing about it day in day out every hour uh, not to forget that people are you know the atrocities are still occurring they're still, they're still being revealed um, Russia still needs to be held to account for its actions etc uh, and I do see that I mean I see you know on on Twitter there's a, a, a group that um, from Australia, it's actually NAFO. Um, uh, so all the fellas, the Australian fellas there, uh, who 
day in, day out, they are covering and um, kind of acting. And yes, it's all online. It's, it's online activism. And, but it's, it's important because they're also sharing those conversations in their communities. And these are not necessarily people who have the either diaspora or Ukrainian heritage links. Uh, and that I see that as continuing to be very important uh, as as unfortunately the the war drags on um, in order to to counter the risks of Ukraine fatigue. But having said that, I must admit here we are 18, 20 months on, and we are still seeing. And maybe it's just the I know, well, I know it's partly because of the the, the level of. Um, of constant monitoring and, and energy that 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 comes with this job of keeping an eye on what's going on, but you know, outside of Ukraine, um, we are seeing that some of the the big mainstream media uh, they are continuing to to cover what is going on in Ukraine. We we do still have major outlets with with their journalists based in Ukraine and visiting Ukraine regularly. And so that that obviously helps with, with fighting against fatigue. The other thing I should have mentioned is Australian support for Ukrainians seeking refuge in Australia. So we've, uh, the Australian government has granted more than 13,500 visas to Ukrainians wishing to seek refuge in Australia. Uh, to date, more than 10,500 Ukrainians have, with these visas have arrived in Australia. Now, a, a great bulk of them, obviously, like elsewhere, do want to return when conditions allow. But for so many of them, whilst they will have links within the diaspora and, and family connections, so many of them have just, they've been embraced by the community. I mean, here in Poland, I've, I've seen that happen on a massive scale. But it is the same, even as far away as Australia. Um, so even further away than Canada, if you like. From Ukraine, you've you've had people just being taken in to the to the community, uh, and yeah, by having that connection, I think is is really key in what Australian communities can do to support Ukraine is ensuring that Ukrainians who are seeking refuge in Australia um, are part of part of community and are, and and part of Australian society. That's so beautiful, and I think it really encapsulates the the welcoming spirit that I've experienced with every Australian I've ever met. So hospitable and friendly, and while I'm sad that Ukrainians can't be at home, if if they're going to go anywhere, I mean, Australia is not a bad place to be. It's not a bad. It's not a bad place. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, with your your years of working in Ukraine and with Ukraine. Do you have any stories? Do you have a story that might stick out to you um, that you want to share with our audience about a personal experience in Ukraine or an interaction with the Ukrainian um, that can summarize your views on on Ukrainian resilience or I, Ukrainian I, character? Yeah, I, I kind of I wouldn't say I've got a specific one one story um, or, or interaction. I just think I've come across so many Ukrainians in my time. Um, which is very brief, I say, in my time. It's only, you know, all up, it's, it's only kind of four and a bit years. That there has just been that it is, it is resilience. And, and I think for so many people um, around the world who have been captured, if you like, by, and, and yes, President Zelensky encapsulates it, that uh, whether, whether the words were 
accurately said or not in terms of I don't need ammunition, I need a rod. Sorry, I don't need a rod, I need ammunition. Um, but the willingness to actually stand for what is right and the things, the, the witnessing the people crossing into Poland last year, and I mean, this has been, this has been written about a huge number of times, but the way in which people who had had not been expecting this, I mean, you, yeah, for all of the talk prior to the full-scale invasion, none of us ever thought it would really happen. And I think still now, if asked the same question, we would still say, but the reason we said it wouldn't happen is because it was such a stupid bloody idea. And now 18 months on, it is still such a stupid bloody idea. And how did, I mean, Putin was so very badly informed to think that that this was going to be the cakewalk that he anticipated. And when I saw people traveling into Poland with literally two plastic bags and walked, we, we were doing um, trips across the border to, for consular assistance to, to Australians and um, you know, many Australian Ukrainians. People who had walked 18 kilometers because they couldn't get it, well, because of the queues, they'd gotten out of their taxi. They'd walked the final 18 kilometers with, um, I saw people there with plastic bags. I, I remember these Australian Ukrainians who, who rocked up and they had two rolly bags, um, suitcases, and their 18 month old child. And they had walked 18 kilometers and with the, the mother and father carrying their kid that time. Now they, they're now in Melbourne and safe and so forth. But seeing so many people who crossed and then their adamant desire was to go back as soon as they could. And likewise, on the, on the Polish side, seeing these buses of young men coming in who, hey, they were, their martial law had been, um, had been enshrined, men weren't allowed to leave the country at the time. But here you had these fighting age men who came back in buses and just, it was, this is the right thing. This is what we have to do. And yeah, there's a, there's a, a saying that's used kind of quite often in, in relation to the Ukrainian war in Ukraine where you know, it's the, the soldier fights not because he hates who's in front of him, but because he loves who is behind him. And I think that kind of really speaks to the way in which Ukrainians have, all, all Ukrainians have, have approached uh, the last eight months. They're not doing this because they, um, you know, militant or, 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 or bloodthirsty or so forth. It's because they're seeking to protect their country and uh, a country for which they you know, have, have, do have that, that love and, and aspiration for the future. Um, in a way that has, yes, it shocked the hell out of people, shocked people around the world that this, um, I suppose, tiny power, what people saw as a tiny power, but I suppose that speaks to the kind of misunderstanding of the rest of the world as well as Putin, if you like, uh, was going to try and stand up to the to the might of, of Russia. But I, um, I, I, in, our, in our work, we um, are reluctant at times to get too far into to um, uh, prognostication or, or, or 
foreseeing the, the future, um, but I will always be able to stand by the, the fact that we, we, in our reporting, we went against the, the idea that, that Russia, Russian forces would be uh, in Krushanik within three days. And I said, even if, um, even if Russian forces did manage to eventually get to Kiev, they're going to face an insurgency, the likes of which has not been known because you know, of 44 million people, you're going to have 10 million people who are going to, uh, to actively rise up and make life hell for, for any occupying force. Um, and, and I think it's that kind of attitude that, that you see coming through. Not to say it's easy and not to say we're dealing with, you know, Ukrainians are not a superhuman race here. They, they, they are fighting and dying and, 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 um, and suffering like anyone else, but they have this, um, this resolute determination, uh, because they're protecting their own land. And, you know, and this is, we've seen this in other conflicts around the world. Um, of course, when you're, when you are protecting your own land, um, you, you, there's a little bit, bit extra in there. I love that quote. I love that so, so much. That really touched me. The one about, uh, they fight not because they hate who's in front of them, but love who's behind them. That, yeah. wow, that is, that is such a beautiful quote and such, such I, a I strong mean, reflection of the Ukrainian spirit in my any opinion. Of us, any of us who, who, who kind of have been following events on Twitter over the last 80 months, um, you know, I defy you to say you haven't had a tear in your eye when you see those videos of returning servicemen and women return to their homes and surprise their kids, um, you know, walking through the front door and being, <laughs> being absolutely, um, swamped by kids and, and wives and, and husbands. Um, you know, this, this is why they fight. Um, and you just, you hope every single one of them can return to that. Absolutely. So I think, I honestly think that already answered the last question, but I'll ask it anyway. What does being Ukrainian mean to you? So um, obviously I, I'm not Ukrainian. I can't speak to speak to uh, um, what being Ukrainian is for a Ukrainian. But I think, um, yeah, in, in some ways, I suppose I've, I've covered it. What people have seen of the Ukrainian spirit, people who did not know Ukraine previously. Um, and they have been inspired um by what by what they have seen they've been inspired by yeah again Zelensky has has kind of been the um the, the figurehead of so much uh, and and has you know been masterly in how he has been able to to lead the country and um represent the country internationally uh for for so many right now being Ukrainian is is about resilience and resoluteness and prevailing and um I, you know <laughs> there's a the t-shirt that's out there uh saying i am ukrainian um i, I kind of almost wish that maybe maybe this could be your your podcast uh, merch line you know i am ukrainian ish um because you don't just want to say i want to be ukrainian uh but um i i when you first told me about this podcast i i thought it was perfect because even those of us who don't have 
Ukrainian links and, and family and heritage, um, we can aspire to be a little bit Ukrainian-ish. And having spent time there, I, I, uh, I, I don't think you can help but um, have a little bit of it rub off on you. Um, and and uh, yeah, I, I, that right now, um, you know, ironically, this, this war has brought Ukrainian, Ukraine onto, a, onto the international stage and in a way that none of us would have ever wanted. But more people know about Ukraine now. More people know, uh, uh, I suppose, the, more of the truths of Ukraine. Uh, and as you were saying before, you know, more, more people will want to travel there and so forth. And, and yes, that's, that's what is hoped for after the war, that um, the international community will, will continue to rally and support reconstruction and, and redevelopment of society. Um, but I, yeah, um, we, we just, we do hope that's the case. And, and right now, um, what it is to be, to be Ukrainian is, is, is to, to fight for, for what is right. Um, and then there's so much, I mean, that's putting aside the war. And again, you kind of don't want to get bogged down just in, just in, in the war because being Ukrainian is, you know, it, it, there, there, it is that, it is that fun. It is that celebration of, of life and culture and traditions and memory um, of what they've been through, um, at, yeah, at the hands at the hands of others. And it's in in so many ways. I mean, it is so sad for not only right now, but um, Ukraine is is rem is remembered for the suffering that it has endured over over the last hundred years or so. Um, when it, it rightly so should be celebrated also for the beauty of the place, the, the strengths of character. Um, there's another, I mean, I always had heard when, when I first arrived in Ukraine in 2016 was, um, Ukrainians don't smile for strangers, they smile for their friends. And um, I had just come from recently from Lebanon where definitely Lebanese will, will smile for strangers and welcome them in. Um, um, to their meal and so forth, but I found that with Ukrainians that, yeah, it, that may be the case, but it doesn't take much to become a friend, and just you, you scratch the you scratch the patina and you go from stranger to friend, um, pretty pretty quickly. And there is that there is that love of life, I think, and celebration of life that um, that is part of why so many of us who have spent time there um, feel they kind of you maintain a maintain a connection that may not be the same as spending spending time working in other places. Wow. This has been one of my favorite episodes. Everything you're saying is is so so true and so it's really resonating with me because I think the, the way you've summarized your view and perspective on Ukraine as a foreigner is is very true to how I had perceived it coming back after living abroad for 10, nine, 10 years. Yeah. And, and I, I love, love what you said about Ukrainians not smiling for strangers, but for friends that that's so true that, yeah, <laughs> but it, it never takes too, it never takes too long to get into a Ukrainian's heart. It's a little, no, a little the, tough yeah. at first, but once you get through, 
it's a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think I mean all, all your and in your first episode when you when you and Naomi spoke about um, I suppose that uh, confusion of our identity. As you know, um, our son is um, he, he carries three passports and he's got no idea where he's from. Um, and you know when we're in in Ukraine, um, he. Well, he, didn't, he never considered himself Ukrainian, but it was home. And still now we talk about, oh, is because our belongings, many of our belongings are still in, in Kiev. Um, we'll say, oh, what about that, whatever, so-and-so we have? And I'd say, yeah, we've got that. Guess where? He'd be, ah, Kiev. And he still talks about wanting to, to spend more time there and, and so forth. Uh, so even, yeah, even for youngsters, um, it, it definitely gets under the skin. Oh, I really hope he can go back. That would be so nice. So do we. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of our episode. Is there anything you want to plug or promote? Is there, I mean, we deal with a lot of uh, nonprofits that want to plug their social medias or their next campaign. Is there any call to action you have for our listeners? No, I mean, look, we, we do have a, have, a, have a Twitter feed if, if people would like to follow. Um, it may not be as exciting as some, but that's just at A-U-N-U-A, so A-U-I-N-U-A. Um, but apart from that, I think the only thing to plug is, is your um, I am Ukrainian-ish t-shirt line. That's going to be a hot seller. Okay. Okay. Well, we've got at least one buy, and that's from you. So <laughs> we'll, we'll work on it. I hadn't considered that, but... Okay. Merch, it's the way forward. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Thank you so much. And, um, yeah, really, really enjoy um, what what you guys have, have created there. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful way of coming into... Um, to talk around Ukraine and um, in in a different context um, and bring a different perspective onto uh, on onto the country and the fact that it is Ukraine is far more than a war um, and um, and will will be um, it may be remembered for some time but um, you know Ukraine is and it will rebuild and um, it will continue to be somewhere that has dreams and aspirations and um, and reason to visit and support. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for listening, guys. See you guys next time.